Believe it or not, it has been several months since we have studied the book of Proverbs together with all of the Christmas festivities and then with conferences, and retreats, concerts, and other special services, including a special Resurrection Day evening. I simply have not had the opportunity to minister to you from these proverbial sayings of King Solomon. Thankfully, though, we do have the privilege tonight. With your Bible in your hand, I want you to turn to Proverbs 13. Proverbs chapter 13. We're going to see tonight, as the title suggests, the way to really live. From Proverbs chapter 13, the way to really live. Let me read for you Proverbs chapter 13. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The soul of the diligent is made fat. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. There is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. What you can plainly see here in Proverbs 13 is Solomon, its author, continues his relentless pursuit of instructing his sons in the way of righteousness and in the way of truth. And as he has done several times before, Solomon, according to verse 1, is endeavoring to teach and instruct and warn and command his sons about the way to really live. Verse 1 is like a title or like an introduction. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. You see, what Solomon is doing is he's setting up his boys for their necessary response in his message to them. He's saying, in effect, 
You're either going to accept my teaching, which is designed to correct you in your foolishness, or you're going to respond like scoffers, those who doubt their parents' instructions and warnings because they don't listen to rebuke. That's the introduction. That's the title to the rest of what he wants to communicate to his own sons in this marvelously instructive chapter. It is not anything other than the epitome of the difference, I would say, between a Christian and a non-Christian response. Christian response, of course, will on the whole accept his father's discipline. But the non-Christian who is trusting in himself and in his own path is like a scoffer or could be translated like a mocker who will not listen to rebuke. Listen to what Scripture says about the ultimate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although He was a Son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. In other words, although, the writer to the Hebrews says, He was God incarnate, although He was Son, although He was the Son of God, nevertheless, while He was growing up into adulthood, He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He didn't negate the instruction of the Father. And as a non-Christian might, who would not listen to rebuke, the Lord Jesus did everything that he was told, and he was instructed, and he responded to that instruction perfectly. Also in Isaiah 50, verse 5, The Scripture says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Jesus listened with an obedient ear to His heavenly Father's wise instruction, and was not disobedient and did not turn back from following God's will. He is our preeminent example of an obedient son, isn't He? Who listened to His heavenly Father's counsel. His was not a scoffing. His was not a mocking of his father's instruction. And that's really the backdrop, I think, of this chapter and so many others in these chapters of Proverbs. It sort of pictures in the background the Lord Jesus and how he responded in all of these ways, righteously so. And with that in mind, I say to all of us, especially those of us who are parents in the worship center tonight, what better way, what better way for all of us to parent our own children and applying these truths by coming to Sunday nights here at the Bible Church of Little Rock in order to hear God's Word being taught, especially from these tremendous chapters in the book of Proverbs. In our family worship time, in the early morning hour, we'll usually take whatever day of the month it is and read one of these chapters of the book of Proverbs, and we've done that for many, many years, and it's the opportunity for us to continue to have in our mind's eye the truth, the gold nuggets of truth that these Proverbs give to us. They are wonderful truths. We talk about them all the time. And because they're such a part of our life as a family, so many of these come to mind when we stumble across the problems of life, when we transgress the commands of God. They're here to prick us. They're here to chide us. They're here to challenge us, challenge our conscience. And that's why I love to preach through these Proverbs on Sunday night here. And when I preach God's Word to you, I'm duty-bound, just as Solomon does in chapter after chapter after chapter in this Old Testament book, to tell you the same things over and over and over again. I never tire of these Proverbs, and neither should you. Oh, they might say things a little bit differently at times, but by and large, chapter after chapter, especially from chapters 10 through 31, you're basically hearing the same thing over and over and over again, just in a few nuances of different ways. And I never tire of it. it. You should never tire of it, because it's God's holy word that we're hearing. I bring this to your attention because in chapter after chapter, in section after section, proverb after proverb, Solomon is telling his children how they should talk, how they should handle money, 
how they should make ethical decisions, how they should treat others, how they should pursue righteousness, how they should avoid evil, how they should shun laziness, how they should be disciplined, how they should love God, confess sin, pray fervently, etc., etc., etc. It's like a broken record. Constantly and repeatedly reminding all of us, and not simply parents toward children, that this is how we are to really live. And this is why I believe I'm on very safe and scriptural grounds to say the same things over and over again to you and to my own children, to you the spiritual children of God and to my own flock of a family. Never tire of this. And if you've come tonight with the expectation that maybe this particular series of Proverbs in chapter 13 are somehow different from the others, you're going to be sorely disappointed. They're the same. They are really the same. And I would suggest, however, that you reorient your expectation level and instead thank God that you're hearing yet again and are being regularly reminded of these ways to really live your righteous life. This is our opportunity yet again. You have in the providence of God come tonight. I have in the providence of God come prepared to teach you tonight. And that is our opportunity before God to learn these truths again and again and again, especially tonight. Don't we forget so easily during the week, between the Lord's days, that so many things are forgetful to us and maybe even things are so familiar to us that we lose sight of them. All of the trials and temptations and problems and issues that come to us between the Sundays so that we need to come back again refreshed and ready, willing and able to respond even if it's the same kind of truth told to us, maybe in a little different way, but largely the same over and over and over again. Well, that's what Proverbs 13 does to us. And as I come to each of these chapters, and as I rehearse them in my mind and meditate upon them week after week after week, as I study them and also prepare them in a preaching context, you always have the challenge of outlining, especially from the book of Proverbs. What might be the best way to outline this chapter of Proverbs? Well, I suppose that we could outline the whole chapter as in the following. The first verse, which we just spoke about, which is, as I said, like a title or an introduction, merges us, after we finish it, into the whole chapter like this. Four ways to really live. Four ways to really live. Number one, the way to really talk and live, verses 2 through 6, the way to really talk and live, Secondly, the way to really spend and live, verses 7 to 11. The way to really spend and live. Thirdly, the way to really think and live, verses 12 to 19. The way to really think and live. And fourthly, the way to really walk and live, verses 20 to 25. The way to really talk and live the way to really spend and live, the way to really think and live, and the way to really walk and live. Now, there's nothing particularly powerful about an outline like that, but it does, I think, give us the opportunity to grasp the truth that is in this chapter. And I want to talk tonight about that first outline point, the way to really talk and live. And we're going to cover verses 2 through 6 this evening, and then in our next opportunity together, maybe we'll catch the middle part of the chapter, and then we'll finish it up with a third message in that latter part of chapter 13. Let's read again verses 2 through 6 to have our bearings for this evening's message. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, 
but wickedness subverts the sinner. Now the reason why I have stated this outline point in this particular way is because in three of the five verses here, we have Solomon commenting on our need to teach our children about their talk. Now, you know why I spoke in the introduction as I did, because this is yet another set of Proverbs about the speech of the righteous person. We've talked about it, we've defined it, we've we've preached on it, and yet here again Solomon is not yet through himself talking to his sons about their mouths. And the other two verses, if you see it there, are speaking of our lives. And that's why we have the outline point, the way to really talk and live. Let's look at verse 2. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. Now this Solomonic instruction pertains to the bountiful blessings that come from those whose mouths speak what is right. He says they'll receive the fruit of that speech and that they'll enjoy good consequences which come from the right and proper use of the mouth. This is such good instruction for me and for my family. I was just talking this past weekend with one of my children about their injudicious speech. I told them that their speech, whether it's in person or on the phone or on the internet, is really like you're broadcasting your heart to everyone to listen to, for everyone to see. And lo and behold, right here in Proverbs 13:2 is the very fruit of that kind of conversation that I had with that person in my family. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. You must be very, very careful with the broadcasting of your words, whether it's in person, whether it's on the telephone, or whether it's some other form of communication like the Internet, like instant messaging, like email, any number of ways in which your words are cataloged your words are heard. How important this is. And Solomon says to his own sons, from the fruit of your mouth you enjoy good, or you can enjoy good. Talking about the righteous person. But notice, the desire of the treacherous is violence. And presumably because of the very very context of not only this section, but the contrast here in verse 2, I think he's talking about treacherous words. If you speak with treacherous words, you'll see nothing but violence. By the way, the word desire there could mean in the Hebrew text the word throat. And if it implies this, the sense would be that what the treacherous speaks about results in violence. Violence, no doubt, for themselves and for others. And did you also notice that Solomon is using the metaphor of food here from the fruit of a man's mouth. He enjoys good. That's easy for us to know. Just as we enjoy good food when we have worked for it and we receive from it the fruit of our labor, so the young man who watches his own speech will enjoy the fruit of his own labor, the good results that will come from his mouth. But if you are deceitful and if you are treacherous, your desired result will be nothing but violence. Let's look at verse 3. It goes on in verse 3 to talk about the way to really talk and live. He says, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And of course, if you link this with verse 2, Solomon is saying, Son if you would but realize how to guard your mouth. You'll enjoy, first of all, according to verse 2, the good fruit of your labor. And secondly, you'll be able to guard your mouth with the result that your life will be preserved. You might be able to say it like this. In verse 2, he's proactively speaking. And in verse 3, he's reactively restraining his lips. One You are very much talking and what you're talking about is good and you'll receive the good labor from it. In verse 3, you're 
reactively restraining what maybe your mind might be thinking, but you restrain your words, you want to guard your mouth so that your life will be preserved. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Your life will be preserved. Proverbially, your, your attitudes, uh, your conduct, uh, the receptivity to your words, what people think about you, how they respond to you, uh, how you'll be able to make it in this life, how God uh, protects you, how God guards you, how God preserves you. All of that is bound up there. And if another Proverbs, proverb, uh, proverb, Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do you realize how important your words are? You probably have if you've been severely hurt by somebody who's injured you with their words. You've probably also experienced it from them when they have been injured by your words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And Solomon says here in verse 3, your life will be preserved if you guard your mouth. It's a matter of life and death. And I've had to speak to my own children and to my own heart about our mouths, especially as we speak to one another, but also how we speak outside our home. And you know, when your children are young, especially it seems to me with young men, they can so easily at times slip into obnoxious speech, immature speech, sarcastic speech. This is, this is precisely what Solomon is telling us and telling us to commit to our son's hearing. That we are to challenge their speech. I have mentioned to the boys on several occasions, if you speak to the point of being obnoxious or immature, you'll have a response from people where no doubt they'll begin to turn away from you. They don't want to spend time with you. They don't want to get into uh, tit-for-tat with you. They, they don't want to be around you because uh, you're not mature. You're not responding in your speech in such a way that they enjoy being around you. Don't be obnoxious and don't be immature in the way that you communicate with one another, especially as it relates to how you relate to one another in the home, to your, your siblings. And if you can catch them at that level, and if you can challenge their speech at that level, how much more will it be a gracious, a maturing, a wonderful receptivity when they leave your home and go out into a watching world? How much more will it be for them in terms of an easier road, a more straight path? That's exactly what Solomon is telling us here. And all of our church's children, all of the children of the Bible Church of Little Rock would do well to heed the warning that Solomon gives us in the latter part of verse 3. Look at it with me. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Memory verse ought to be at the forefront of our minds. Not just the positive, but the very reason why Solomon presents to us the negative or the contrast. Yes, it is true that the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. But oh yes, how much more true is it that the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. This is, this is a very graphic way of putting it, isn't it? Opening wide his lips. That's actually pretty gracious of the text, at least in our English translation. It's talking about having a wide open mouth. It's... Um, Describing what we have described in our own culture as a big mouth. Not somebody who's tight-lipped, but somebody who's a big mouth. That's what he's saying. This has to do with the opposite of someone who's guarding or protecting their speech. This is a person who is garrulous, talkative. Someone who's just always speaking, always talking, overly so, injudiciously so. Opening wide his lips could simply be referring to a person who speaks in such a way that they open wide their mouth and what comes out is a, is a flooding torrent of words. Just indiscreet. 
Somebody who's just always talking, who's always giving their opinion, who's always saying something. It could mean that. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew word which Solomon uses here is pasak. And if we were to gain some help from its only other usage in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's used in Ezekiel 16.25, used there of unfaithful Israel, likened spiritually to a harlot who is so sexually promiscuous she literally spreads wide her legs because of her sexual lust. That's the same word. Very, very graphic. Speaking, of course, of the illicitness of the act. And if that Ezekiel passage helps us, even if Solomon might have been borrowing the imagery behind the word, not just the word itself, but the sexual connotation also. Listen to Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, on this particular word. He writes, quote, With his lips, the expression may denote either spreading the lips wide apart so that the words flow out unrestrained in torrents, and or, according to Ezekiel 16.25, connote lewd and indiscreet speech that does not restrict itself to the norms of propriety, especially if lips has a sexual association. End quote. In other words, maybe what you could say about this person is not only are they talking a lot, but they're talking about inappropriate things. That's the difference. One person, the righteous person, the righteous man, guards his mouth and as a result preserves his life. But the other one, the unrighteous man, the wicked man, opens wide his mouth with the result, Solomon says, that he comes to utter ruin. It's the difference between death and life. It's the difference between someone for whom you want to learn from, to be around, versus someone that you don't want to have anything to do with. And in bouncing off the idea of the metaphor of food from verse 2, Solomon writes in verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. You say, how does that relate specifically to words? Well, it may not relate specifically to words or the speech, and that's why I've outlined this, the way to really talk and live. This is just talking about living. Solomon could be also, by the way, switching off between the literal and the metaphorical. And I say that because within this particular Middle Eastern culture, someone who was a slugger, sluggard who was lazy might indeed crave food but receive nothing to eat. He could be talking about someone literally like that, who's literally a sluggard. Uh, we know very little of this in America, but in that particular culture, it might have very well been that a sluggard died, became emaciated because they wouldn't work for food. They would crave it, but they wouldn't do the work for it, and therefore they wouldn't receive it. But I think probably, even beyond just this literal possibility here, I think he's really talking about a metaphorical or a spiritual sense of this, because notice what he says there, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. See, he's talking about the soulish dimension, the spiritual dimension. Similar idea for the word that Solomon used in verse 2 to describe the desire or could be translated the appetite of the treacherous. We're talking not just what is true in the material world regarding the diligent labors of someone working hard to receive, to receive the fruit of their labor but also what is spiritually true regarding the lazy, regarding the unbelieving soul. Someone who's spiritually a sluggard. They crave, they have an appetite for, they have a desire, and they get nothing. But, Solomon says, the soul of the diligent is made fat. What a difference. Somebody who gets nothing... You can see from that person sort of a, a spiritual anorexia 
Someone who gets nothing, even though they crave it, but because they're lazy and they're sluggardly, they don't receive anything. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. It's true, of course, in the, in the physical world, true in the spiritual world as well. Fatness will be the return on your pursuits. You see, if you're diligent, and maybe, because of the context, maybe it's a diligence in terms of how you conduct your life, including your speech. How you conduct yourself. How disciplined are you? How disciplined are you? How diligent are you in life? With regard to work, with regard to the fruit of your, your physical labors, with regard to the fruit of your spiritual labors. How are you doing in this area of your speech? How are you doing in this area in terms of your overall diligence? The soul of the sluggard, he craves, but he gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. It's the idea of being replenished, being given good gifts, honored, the fruit of your hard work. In fact, it really comes to my mind in Psalm 128, which speaks of this very thing, Psalm 128. You, of course, are probably very, very familiar with it because it talks in that sense of the blessing of a family. But did you notice how it starts, Psalm 128.1? How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. You see, there's a a fearing of the Lord. There's a diligence. There's a dedication. There's a discipline to fearing the Lord. And when you walk in His ways, you're going to eat the fruit of it. You'll be happy. It will be well with you, your family and your house, your wife, your children. Like olive plants around your table, you'll be blessed. That's what Solomon is saying here. You'll be made fat. You'll be blessed in what you do because you're diligent. And notice he continues on in this instruction about the use of the tongue in verse 5. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Oh, if this is not so applicable to the speech of a Christian, that a righteous man hates falsehood, that the Bible talks about, even in the Ten Commandments, about not lying, and about the character of God in the New Testament when it speaks of God who is not a liar, God who cannot lie. This is the fruit of of a man's diligence. This is a righteous man's heart. He hates falsehood. In fact, the sense of the verse is that he passionately hates a false word, debar. He he is so concerned. He's a righteous son, and he's concerned about the integrity of his own speech as well as the speech of others. Boy, is is that true of us? Are we concerned about our own speech? Are we concerned about our children's speech? Are we concerned about falsehoods, whether they might be considered by some as little lies, little white lies, big lies, everything else in between? It's all falsehoods to God. It's all a false word. The the righteous man is going to be forever alarmed by anyone who speaks falsely. And he's going to, first of all, guard his own speech. He's going to say, I want to speak the truth. And if he does, he's going to be championed in society as one who can be trusted. You remember, of course, the legacy, probably the worst legacy of the Clinton years in the White House was those things for which he obviously, uh, under uh, the witness stand, under oath, was proven to be a liar. There was even though he might have had good ratings in terms of uh, the financial picture of the country and in terms of other components economically, the issue of his personal character took a nosedive from that point on. He couldn't be trusted. He wasn't championed in society, 
because he loved falsehood. And that's what Solomon says in the latter part of verse 5. But a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. And again, presumably because of the contrast he's making with the righteous man's hatred of falsehood, he's talking about a wicked man and how he obviously doesn't hate falsehood. And because he doesn't, he's, he's acting therefore disgustingly and shamefully. And why wouldn't this man be someone that you would not want to be? If you put them all together, according to verse 1, he's a scoffer or a mocker. According to verse 2, he's a treacherous man of violence. According to verse 3, his speech is at most sexually charged or at the least indiscreet and unending. And according to verse 4, he's a sluggard who craves evil things but is ultimately finding nothing for his laziness. And according to verse 5, he acts disgustingly and shamefully. By the way, that word disgustingly could be translated, probably should be translated, stench. It's a stench. It just stinks. It means that a person speaks and acts falsely, and therefore, because it stinks, it's repulsive to society. These are tremendous words from Solomon to his sons. Oh, I wish I could memorize all of the Proverbs in all 31 chapters. How much more, how much greater would my, would my speech be affected by this? How much more would my living be affected by this? How much more would we live out the righteousness of our life because of this? What, what tremendous instruction that Solomon gave his sons. I wish he had followed some of his own advice at times, don't you? And he says that the wicked man acts like there's a big stench surrounding him. And he even says shamefully here. Because of their actions, because of this wicked man's actions, he'll be looked upon by society as stinking up the place and being a shameful person. This was, by the way, something that was very, very ugly in the society of the Middle East. In fact, look in your Bibles at the prophet Micah. This is just one reference to this idea of being shamed in the culture. That is something that you did not want to have happen in that particular culture. You did not want to be publicly ashamed. You did not want to be publicly humiliated. In Micah chapter 3, listen to Micah 3 beginning in verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. Now this is a speech context. Prophets who are speaking, prophets who are prophesying. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. Verse 7, the seers, the prophesiers, the diviners will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. You see, God's the one in charge of giving a word on their mouths, right? And if you're a holy prophet, if you're a godly prophet, if you're a righteous prophet, you better communicate what God says. You better use your mouth in the right way. And if you don't, no matter what you do and no matter what you say, on a public level, you're going to be shamed. You're going to be embarrassed. And that is a lot like Proverbs 13.5. A wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. And then concluding this first section regarding the way to really talk and live, Solomon says in verse 6, Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. Do you remember that word guard? 
in verse 3, referring to someone's mouth which guards them and therefore preserves their life? Well, while it isn't the same Hebrew term, it still carries a similar connotation. Here the guarding is not simply a guarding of your mouth, but an entire righteous life which guards you. It's not just what you say, it's, it's everything you do. And righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. That's, that's the truth of Holy Scripture. That's what you can count on. That's the promise that God can give you. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 8 says it this way. Proverbs 2, 8. Guarding the paths of justice and He preserves the way of His godly ones. God preserves the way of of His godly ones. He guards the paths of justice. And then over in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide them. The integrity of the upright will guide them. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Wow, what a contrast. And in yet another contrast, in our own text, Verse 6b, wickedness subverts the sinner. What a contrast. When a man's righteousness guards his way, he will be seen as blameless. His acts will be applauded. Maybe not by everyone in the world, but by those who know and love the truth. But by contrast, wickedness subverts the sinner. Subverts, it means overturn means to twist, means to distort. See, that's what happens with wickedness. It distorts the truth. It distorts the reality of a, of a sinner and his perception. They think they're doing well when they're not, but their whole life, their whole calling, their whole idea of life is subverted. It's overturned. It's twisted. It's distorted. Oh, that's seen so clearly in Proverbs 22.12 that says, The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but He overthrows. Same idea. He overthrows. He distorts the words of the treacherous man. You think you're going down the right path. You think you're doing the right thing. But you've got yourself in mind. You don't have the glory of Jesus Christ in mind. You don't have the glory of God uppermost in your mind. And you think you're doing the right thing. You think you're doing well. And all of a sudden God Himself twists and distorts your path. You're subverted. Same ideas mentioned in Job chapter 12 when he responds. He speaks of the power of God in Job 12.19. And he talks about God and he says, He makes, does God, priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people, makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. What's the point? Point is, you better follow God. You better do what He says. You better live your life according to His paths, His will, His way. That's profound truth that Solomon gives his sons, and this is just the first. Six verses. We've got so much more to go. We want to learn how the, the way to really live affects our, our spending and our living and our thinking and our living and our walking and our living and oh, so much more as we go through the book of Proverbs. Let's pray together. As your head is bowed, Let me ask you some questions. As Solomon does here, taking yet more ways, proverbially, in which to parent his children, how is your parenting going? How are you doing in 
the area of your own speech as a parent and then how you parent your children and theirs. Are you taking these Proverbs to heart? Not only for your own life, but for the sake of your kids? What's your own assessment of your parenting in these ways? How are you doing? Or maybe I could ask you this question. How would your own children assess your parenting? What would they say about your speech to them? Do you and do they believe that you're taking the truth of Scripture like this truth from Proverbs 13 and inculcating it in their lives? What if you're here and you have grandchildren? What are you doing to teach them, to model for them the right kind of speech and the right kind of living? Remember, this is what Solomon says is the way to really talk and live. Take a moment to assess your parenting. Ask the Lord to evaluate you and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you in the areas for which you are not inculcating those truths properly. Ask Jesus the Lord, that model son, to instruct you and to give you wisdom as you parent your children, your grandchildren, or even just your own life. Seek by the aid of the Holy Spirit, working under His power, to look at these Proverbs and others and other portions of Scripture to help you in your parenting. Resolve today to be the kind of parent that Solomon speaks of here in all of those positives, all of those virtues. Tell the Lord that you want to be a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous parent, a righteous grandparent. And if you're not in any of those categories, if God is preparing you for that role, ask Him to lead and teach and parent you now, spiritually, so that you might be ready for those days. If you don't believe that you are headed for those days or you've long passed them, ask God to make you a prayer warrior for 
those who are parenting and grandparenting. Hold accountable and pray for those who desperately need this kind of instruction. Confess any habits or patterns of sin that you see in your life, your parenting. Maybe harsh words or the lack of discipline. Or being too sidetracked by other interests. Ask God to give you a focus as a parent. If you're a single parent, ask the Lord to give you strength and insight to fulfill what you can in that role. If you're struggling with the husband-wife relationship and you know that you're Children, see it. Make this your absolute priority under God to make right that relationship and to confess to your spouse and to your children that you have not been what you needed to be as a husband or a wife. Lord, we thank You for challenging us this evening with the kind of parental picture that convicts us, that slays our consciences. Lord, we confess that we have with our mouths not yet learned how to really live. And we ask that you would mold us and shape us and remake us so that we would honor you with our lips. May we heed the wise instruction of this ancient sage so that we would bring glory To the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the great name of the Holy Trinity, we pray. Amen.